And so the name of the inlet was was uh, it became Oregon Inlet. Uh, so it was quite, quite literally Oregon Inlet. It, it led it, the Oregon in. Uh, good, good. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, I uh, might uh, just introduce uh, geographic names themselves. Most people don't think about them because they're second nature to us. We use them every day. You can't get through a day without using geographic names or place names all the time. And uh, just in case, uh, in case you want to know this, the study of names, all names, is called onomastics. The study of place names, a subdivision of onomastics, is called toponymy. Having said that, we just call them place names or geographic names. And they're very important because names are necessary to refer to anything. They are uh, what we refer to as uh, identifying landmarks in our environment. It's how we navigate our environment. And we start doing this uh, as a youngster. Uh, we make what we call mental maps uh, to get from one place to another. And these landmarks have names. And we learn these names as we go, if, or we even assign them if they're not already named. But one very important aspect of names and why, um, why I think a, a toponymic study of the Outer Banks, a study of the names, is so important is geographic names serve as cultural markers. What does that mean? That means that they are, they are surficial identifiers that allow us to probe into our culture. They, they mark and delineate our culture. Uh, just as an aside, what is one of the very first things that conquering armies have always done throughout history? They conquer a place, they change the name. Think St. Petersburg and Leningrad in Russia. Names change. Back and forth, names change because they identify the culture on the landscape. So that's why it is so important that, that a study of the Outer Banks be done regarding the geographic names because that culture uh, is nowhere near what it used to be uh, even 50 years ago. It's disappearing rapidly. And even I found a lot of the old timers had forgotten what, what uh, the original meaning of some of the names are. So I think that's a very important reason to, to have uh, done such a study. And if I may say, uh, as, as was mentioned, most of the name, a lot of the stories behind the names or the name origins are what we call folk etymology. That's etymology, not entomology. Entomology, study of insects. Etymology, the study of the development of things that are named. And, and um, a lot of stories of the name origins on the Outer Banks are pure folk etymology that is made up stories. It seems like one of the things we have to do, uh, we need to know why things are named. And if the real reason has been forgotten or is obscure, we tend to embellish or make up reasons. And uh, a lot of the names on the Outer Banks reflect that. I do want to say one thing, if I may, and please, uh, if, 
if I'm going down the wrong road, just stop me and ask me any question you like. Okay. I want to mention the post offices. Without exception, it seems that everyone who has done research on the Outer Banks indicates that the post office changed the names of a lot of the villages there. Well, maybe in a remote, indirect way, but the truth of the matter is the post office department does not now, nor has it ever had the authority to change the name. All it has the authority to do is to name its post office and its delivery zone, known as the zip code area. So what happened is the post office department asked the villages to submit three different names for the post office building only, and it would choose one of those names. Now, there were some basic rules. It couldn't duplicate another name in the same state. It could not be confusing or difficult to spell. And that's why the post office department did not accept some of the village names uh, as the name of the post office. For example, today, Rodanti, and by the way, that's one of the ones where the records have been destroyed, and no one really remembers why it was named that or why the post office chose that name. But that area was known historically as Chickamacomico, one of the 7% of the indigenous names that remained. And in fact, if you go there now, you'll find they're reviving that name Chickamacomico because people take pride in their names and the original names. Same thing is happening in the uh, village uh, a bit south of Rodanthe, the village of Avon, which was the post office name. The original name was Kennekeet, or more specifically, Big Kennekeet, because there was a little Kennekeet also. But the post office department said, that's too confusing, too hard to spell, come up with another name. And they came up with Avon. Uh, it was suggested by the postmaster at the time. Nobody really remembers why. So that's another mystery. Okay, can we stop? Can we stop right there, Roger? Because we need sure. to take a break. And what we'll do is tease things a little bit and we'll come back and talk about some other places along the Outer Banks. I, I spent my afternoon looking up places like Rodanthe and Avon, and Salvo is one that I looked up. And I and one of the things that a person can learn from reading your book is why it's called Salvo. And I think that's an interesting story in itself too. That's a good story. And, and you, you, the point is, is that you had to do an awful lot of face-to-face -face research uh, because there are no books with this stuff in it. The only book that has most of the stuff you're talking about in it is your book. And that's it, right. it, 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 it needs to be collected. There were hundreds of interviews. Right. And that's one of the historians, I think, you, you had a, a variant of what is called oral history. Our guest tonight is Roger Payne. He has a new book, The Outer Banks Gazetteer, published by UNC Press. It is the history of place names from Karova to Emerald Isle on the Outer Banks. And perhaps at some point, Roger, you could, could tell us why the coverage stops at, at Emerald Isle. There's, a, there's an obvious reason, the Barrier Islands, but you, you could outline it, the area that you were principally interested in. We'll do all of that when we come back right after this. Monday through Friday from 9 to 10. Tonight our guest is Roger Payne, who has a new book, The Outer Banks Gazetteer, 
the history of place names from Corova to Emerald Isle, and uh, most of us in, in particularly the eastern part of the North Carolina or uh, South Carolina spend some time at, at the beach. That's one reason we live here. It's kind of like in our front yard, and uh, I've often wanted to measure my life by the fact that I have to make at least one trip to see the ocean every year. I may have historically made more than that. But uh, Roger's with us telling about how he put together this book that uh, contains hundreds, uh, I think probably about 3,000, if I remember correctly, place names, the names of, of points on the on the, the, the coast, uh, uh, and so on, uh, creeks, inlets, whatever. Uh, one of the things, Roger, that I thought might be good in terms of defining the area that uh, you, you, you were treating and dealing with the place names, I think it extends, well, you'll need to correct me on this, from the, from the Virginia border, roughly, including Knott's Island and uh, Corolla and places like that, down to Emerald Isle, which is basically where the barrier islands run out. That The, the land masses below that are not really barrier islands. Uh, does that sound right to you? That's, that's pretty, much, uh, pretty much it. I, I would like to say that uh, a lot of people find this hard to believe, but there are no official definitions of any regions anywhere in any government or anywhere at all. It's all, um, anytime you see a, a, the name of a region, that region was created for a specific application based on certain needs. And the same thing is true with the Outer Banks. Most people uh, who live there consider the Outer Banks from the Virginia line uh, south to Cape Lookout. And most of them ended there. I decided because that's the basic north-south uh, uh, orientation of the barrier islands. But then they turn east-west, and I decided to include Shackleford Banks and, and Bogue Banks because they are two barrier islands. And as you say, after that, they tend to be more sea islands or, not or sometimes even connected to the mainland. There are a couple other barrier islands south of there, but this seemed like a good definitive uh, place for the study to be done. And in fact, Boat Banks is uh, culturally somewhat different from the, uh, uh, from the barrier islands to the north. But I chose to do, as you say, from the Virginia line to Bogue Inlet, which is at the western end of Boat Banks, uh, just down from Moorhead City. I was going to say, them. you just did what I was going to do to clarify exactly for the, those who do not know. You know, one of the things that's true, Roger, is in North Carolina, we have an awful lot of folks now who have not been here as long as you and I have been, if you get my drift. Right. And so they don't, they're not, we actually sometimes have calls at the radio station that say, I don't know where Johnston County is. Tell me, you know, we're having a storm or something like that. But Boat Banks is roughly all Atlantic Beach and roughly off the coast near Beaufort and, uh, and Moorhead right. City. Where uh, it's Atlantic Beach, Salter Path, Indian Beach, Emerald Isle. Right. And uh, uh, I learned something, by the way, I'll interested, be interested in your comment on this. Uh, uh, two or three years ago, uh, an historian from East Carolina, by the way, Larry Tice, you may know him, T-I-S-E, had written a book about, I think, uh, the Native Americans on the on the Outer Banks, but one of the things I learned is that 
that area was not generally called the Outer Banks until the 1920s when some of the people developing it economically chose to use that as a way of a, a concept, making a concept of it, identifying it. If, if, if I may, uh, yes. it, you're right. It was not called the Outer Banks. In fact, it's a, uh, the Outer Banks being applied was an, a term applied from the outside by, by uh, trying to promote the tourist industry. And uh, we can actually draw a specific date on when that term really came into use, and that was 1930. What happened in 1930? A uh, bridge was built from Powell Point over to Kitty Hawk, and uh, it was a private bridge, and it was a toll. A year later, it was uh, purchased by the North Carolina Department of Transportation, and, uh, and of course, now it's a big uh, four-lane bridge across there. Well, I, I know for, it took me a while. I've, I've lived in Raleigh most of the two-thirds, second two-thirds of my life, and I would see on the back of cars the, you know, the little circle with OBX on it, and it didn't immediately occur what they were talking about, and then finally I saw that it was an identi identifying itself. But, but this was created by real estate agents, as you say, rather right. than by government uh, fiat or something like that. And it, it wasn't really used until 1930 onward. Before okay. that, um, maps and charts of the area just simply either used sandbanks or the original Indian names for the area. We've got about two and a half minutes before we need to, yeah, and I know it seems to go fast, but it does when you're having fun. Uh, you had, we've talked about the fact that you talked to a lot of people, but people living now, uh, because a lot of the names of places are folklore, and as you said, Sometimes if they've forgotten one story, they make up a story. We, we, we'll, during the second half of the program, maybe you can tell us a few of those. But you used a lot of old maps, a lot of old books as other sources. Uh, yeah. You know, you know the, in, in addition to the interviews, one of the, uh, one of the things that has made this book possible is the digital age. Because now every map, every primary document, Everything has been digitized and is online and is much more easily accessible now. And not only is it more easily accessible, but you can analyze it more quickly and you can do, this is very important, you can do comparative analysis because that is what is necessary to get at the root of the real name origin. So you, 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 you lay almost like an overlay kind of situation. You lay one down next to the other and, and uh, try to decide, you know, what, what happened here and why did they call it that, okay? I got, I got exactly it. Exactly so. That is exactly right. And, and of course, uh, uh, it, it, it's absolutely essential that you find the necessary original documentation in order to, to validate your analysis. And that's what I've done in this book. I, th I think I can safely say that every name that is of questionable origin originally, I have found the original name origin, and I put it in the book. And regarding those hundreds and hundreds of interviews, I also, uh, when, when names were difficult to unravel, I put a, a timeline and a storyline. Roger. Roger, we need to go right now for our news break. Hold on to that thought. We'll come right back to you right after the news, okay? 
talking about the automatic death of deer, a new book from Roger Payne. I need to talk to you about some friends of ours who reside for business purposes in downtown Raleigh. And we're talking about King's Auto, of course. All of the pollen, and there is a lot of it out there, we are now seeing is a good reminder that now is the time to take your vehicle to King's Auto for a spring checkup. Items that need to be checked include wiper blades to, to rake all that stuff out. They may have taken abuse from winter weather, ice, and things like that. And the cabin air filter helps uh, keep pollen out of the inside of your car. During your spring checkup, make sure that your air conditioner is ready for the upcoming hot weather. It's been over 80 for the last couple of days, so we've had a kind of warm-up to remind you that you need to do that. If you're currently driving a Toyota Prius or some other hybrid vehicle, the certified hybrid technicians at King's are now able to refurbish your high-voltage battery pack for less than the dealer would charge to replace it. This is usually, this usually occurs, by the way, at about 150,000 miles. Call King's tomorrow to schedule a courtesy battery analysis. King's Auto Service and King's Correct Loop, along with the state inspection station, is easy to find at 1039 Northwest Street in downtown Raleigh and at kingautomotive.net on the web. King's Auto Service, Raleigh's most reliable auto care, since 1946. Tom Kearney here, promoing a little bit. Tomorrow night will be Friday Night Trivia. Monday night, Dr. Mike Walden will be on to talk about the economy. Stephen, my brother, will be here to talk about uh, some of the uh, play-up hype on, for the Academy Awards on Tuesday night. So that's what's coming up. But tonight we're talking about the Outer Banks of North Carolina and a gazetteer, a list of place names and things that will help you uh, understand where you are, and a little bit of Eastern North Carolina history, as a matter of fact. The subtitle of the book is The History of Place Names from Corova to Emerald Isle, compiled over the last many years by Mr. Roger Payne, who I want to give his title again. He, one deserves to have their pedigree remembered. He's Executive Secretary Emeritus of the U.S. Board on Geographic Names. So we've gone right to the top here. Uh, we've made it to, to the halfway point, Roger, and uh, I think it would be good if you could take two or three of the place names along the coast and, and sort of break it down for us and sort of show what you have done with them as an example of the book. And I, I ask you about much, one. I'd very much like to do that, and I have some, I have some, uh, a few that I think people will find very interesting. Before I do that, I'd like to take one minute. You mentioned the U.S. Board on Geographic Names. That organization's been around since 1890. It's highly important because it works behind the scenes keeping all the names correct so that million-dollar projects are not delayed. I have seen millions of dollars wasted in delay because the names aren't right. And I should also like to add that uh, all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and the five territories all have state names authority. North Carolina's Board on Geographic Names is actually... Uh, part of the State Mapping Advisory Committee, which is under the umbrella of the North Carolina Geographic Coordinating Council. And they do a lot of good work when it comes to geographic names in North Carolina. So with that said, uh, you mentioned earlier Salvo. Salvo is one of the, is the southernmost of what has come, come to be called in the 21st century, the tri-village area, which is Rodanthe, um, Avon, excuse me, Rodanthe, Waves, and Salvo. Salvo is a very interesting
absolutely believes this story. And it might be true or might not, but we can't prove it yet because it's not documented anywhere. And that is, during the Civil War, after uh, Forts Hatteras and Clark fell uh, in Hatteras, and the Union forces under General Burnside and his flotilla were heading north in Pamlico Sound to capture Roanoke Island, uh, it's reported that one of the captains of one of the ships noticed the village and asked his, uh, uh, one of his officers, what's the name of that village? And he said, there is no name on the map. And the reply from the commander was, well, give it a salvo anyway. Salvo be meaning a discharge of cannon fire. And reportedly the guy, the the uh, officer wrote salvo at the village on the chart. problem with this story is, which it's a nice story and everybody believes it, that chart doesn't seem to exist. In fact, the name salvo for the village does not appear anywhere on any chart or map until 1909. And so if that story is true, it wasn't really recorded anywhere or at least nowhere that we've found so far. Um, of course, the original name of, of uh, Salvo was Clark's, and that was the name of the village all along. Occasionally, Clarksville, but, uh, but the real name was Clark's. So that's one of the interesting stories of how it came to be known as Salvo. And when the post office was established there in... Um, 1903, I believe, uh, they used the name Salvo. Where they got it, we don't know, other than the postmaster recommended it. So that's, that's the interesting story of Salvo. Uh, I'd like to mention now, if I may, Kill Devil Hill. What an odd name. And on this one, the informed historians, geographers and what have you, are simply agreeing to disagree. Popular story, of course, is that that um, the governor of Virginia, back in the 1700s, said that the rum produced there was enough to kill the devil, and therefore it became known as Kill Devil Hill. And there are other made-up stories like uh, Devil Ike killing the devil, and all sorts of things like that. But the truth of the matter is. There's absolutely no evidence, no written documentation anywhere that any rum was ever made on the Outer Banks until the 21st century. There actually is a rum distillery there now, but uh, over in Manio. But uh, I find no evidence of it ever being named uh, Kill Devil for the Rum. I believe it is simply a, uh, a morphing of the term from the kill deer, or kill dee, as the local folks pronounce it, uh, the little shorebird that lives there. So that's my interpretation. Some very well-informed people still think it's the kill, kill devil rum story, but I don't believe that. And they say that, um, that pirates used to store rum there. Well, it's uh, my experience that pirates never stored rum anywhere. <laughs> they never had enough of it. They mostly drank it, didn't they? <laughs> That's right. So anyway, Kill Devil Hills, people still disagree on that, but my interpretation...
interpretation is it's named for the shorebird, the killdeer. Uh, another one, Kitty Hawk, very unusual name. And lots of stories made up about why it's called Kitty Hawk. Truth of the matter is, it's simply a, a um, morphing, a changing of the word Chickahawk, which was the Indian name for that broad area. Uh, of the Outer Banks. Uh, so it's it's really just the word Chickahawk evolving into Kitty Hawk. So that one's not too hard to unravel. The uh, One of the most interesting ones, of course, is Nag's Head and Chalky's Ridge. Now, you think that because it's Nag's Head, which is a horse, and Jockey's Ridge, there's some relationship there. I think not. I think that is a pure coincidence uh, because here's what happened. And by the way, uh, Jockey's Ridge, all of the tourist brochures say that it's because there was a racetrack there and it afforded a very good view of the races that took place. Classic example of folk etymology. There was no racetrack there. Sorry, but there just wasn't. The, it's documented proof now that the term nag's head was actually originally applied to what is now Chalky's Ridge, the sand dune, before there was ever a village there. And we know the exact date. It was applied in 1738 by a chart maker named Wimble. You might know now that off, the, off of Rodanthe there's an area called Wimble Shoals, named for this chart maker. He assigned the name Nag's Head to Jockey's Ridge. Well, not only because it was one of the tallest in the area, it was absolutely crucial to have a name on charts for that ridge because it marked the entrance to former Roanoke Inlet. And it was essential for navigation to be able to sight on that landmark. And, of course, in order to do it, in order to communicate, you had to have a name for it. So Wimble... Uh, we think, chose Nag's Head from a place that re uh, reminded him of another place in England named Nag's Head. Uh, he was English before he was American. But um, uh, that's, that's uh, the first usage of Nag's Head. And then, of course, uh, later on, when a village developed there, the name transferred to the village. And later and and uh what uh what was uh, what is now jockey's ridge was called jaycox hill that's j-a-c-o-x-e jaycox hill because he owned the land there and it's a very rare surname now but you can still find it uh in the norfolk virginia area and jaycox over the years you can you can see this in in all of the old deeds I've examined all of these old deeds of Curatuck County. I say Curatuck County because, recall, Dare County was not created until 1870. So all of the old deeds uh, for the, uh, what is now Dare County are recorded in Curatuck County. Uh, and all those old, old deeds show Jaycox as the landowner of what is now Jockey Ridge and the surrounding area. Over the years, that morphed into Jackie. J-A-C-K-E-Y, and Jackie Ridge was actually on official maps 
as late as 
painting of herself that she was going uh, taking to New York to present to her father, Aaron Burr, that washed up on on shore and spent uh, and spent a lot of years in uh, someone's house there on the Outer Banks. But uh, there's no no real evidence to suggest that uh, that was the case. You know, then it's all it's really interesting in the case of Theodosia Burr. It was even a deathbed confession of a confessed pirate uh, that the ship was captured and everyone was made to walk the plank. But again, there's no evidence of this. Uh, there was a ferocious storm at the time. That could be the culprit. Who knows? But there are all sorts of uh, so, so very many interesting stories associated with these names uh, like that. And so it's very worthwhile to collect all of this, obviously, I think so, into uh, one place. Let me ask you one question here. We've got about a minute. Is there one book, uh, as I said, I became a, a fan of David Stick, who wrote a lot uh, uh, about uh, the uh, graveyard of the Atlantic and things a little bit later, but is there a history of the Outer Banks or, or a book that, that uh, touches on it that you would recommend? I don't know if there's well, one. You know, uh, there, there's not. There's not uh, one real authority. Uh, you mentioned the the authority. David Stick, of course, is the ultimate uh, historian historian of the Outer Banks. He he wrote uh, uh, several books on it, and he is the authority. Um, unfortunately, when it comes to names, he mentions a lot of names, but uh, didn't go into any detail because he obviously didn't have the room or the time to do it. And and I, I think what I hope what I hope I've done I've taken all those names uh, mentioned by Stick and I've actually located them and uh, determined um, documented the actual name origin of those names. So but, but, I, I have uh, I can't thank uh, David Stick enough for all he did and he certainly provided an extraordinary source uh, for me to use as did a lot of other authors, on delving further into the well, origins of these names. But Roger, as we go out the door, let I me thank you for being on with us.